John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1095.LK0852, certificate number 35676. Safety coffins. Bring out your dead! Here's one. Ninepence. I'm not dead. What? Nothing. Here's your ninepence. I'm not dead. Unless our listeners right now are just undying fungal colonies of some kind, then I assume mortality is one of the few constants between us and the far future. Do sure, you, they're constantly regenerating, right? They don't, and they have a maybe they're global just, consciousness. Maybe they're just dying all the time. I just assume whoever they are, their lifespan may also be finite. I guess maybe not. Maybe they're robots. Maybe even human beings have, through the beneficence of our tech overlords, finally discovered the combination of vitamins that lets us live forever. Mark Zuckerberg is probably listening to this in the year 4800. Mm-hmm. Since he was the the youngest billionaire who could freeze his head. Um, I would say that for all of us who are born and die, uh, you know, Nabokov refers to life as a bright flash of light with two great darknesses on either end, one of which troubles us not at all, the other which troubles us endlessly. I love this. Uh, well, think about it. You, I didn't exist for for millennia. How long before did I you was exist? Born. It's really hard to put a number on how long I didn't exist. On Billions our, of years. On our last episode, you suggested that maybe existence is is uh, is negotiable. Sure. I maybe mean, you existed this whole time. I mean, if it's all a simulation, then you know the time could be an illusion. Maybe you sat at the right hand of the Lord for for a billion years and then came down for this short interregnum. Latter Day Saints do believe in uh, the the soul is preexistent with God. Really, coexistent with God. Yeah. Before, before birth. So it's like it's like the eggs in a womb. Uh, You're there from the birth of God, and he just and they come out once in a while. I would say it's more like salmon eggs. <laughs> yeah, it's exactly <laughs> like salmon eggs. That's what we always say. <laughs> um, I would say it's more like a um, what? I mean, obviously, they have to be some kind of memory wipe involved because babies are 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 not born uh, remembering chilling in the clouds. Although, I feel like you've had babies. You know how, the, how spooky they are. Yeah, they seem, they seem like they are connected for a little while. For that first little while, you're like, what are Bef- you looking at? Before the amnesia kicks in. You know, my daughter used to talk about her friends Lala and Anger Kinga when she, when she first had words. And I was like, who's Anger Kinga? She was like, you know, my friends, Anger Kinga and Lala. 
and she kept talking about them for a long time. Is this still your family belief them. system? You all, you all have a little altar to Lala and my a, mom a, a had a whole finger. idea about Lala and Onga Kinga. I was just, I just thought oh, I, I babies are stupid. I bet your mom's thinking deceased relatives. Is that right? Oh, great, or, great, great aunt Louise is Lala, and no, I think uh, she's much more like you were. You were princess in Africa. Oh, I see. It's reincarnation. Yeah. Uh, the uh, but I mean. For all of us, like uh, some kind of fear of death seems pretty universal. Do you have any particular fears around mortality? Well, you know, there have been, you know, uh, uh, just recently a a, uh, a rock star died that was not a not. A, any, young. Yeah, he was, he was young, and not anyone that I, I I knew we'd met. But anytime someone in my line of work dies. A, where there's any association with drugs. And you're in a line of work where that happens more than for almost anyone else in it's, it's, America. It's weird how often um, musicians die when you wouldn't expect, you know, like Tom Petty died of an overdose. And although he was suffering from chronic pain, he overdosed on Ativan. And, uh, and but, you know, plenty of non-Florida frontmen also took too much out of it. Well, it's true, but that's what, you know, but Prince died of it and Michael Jackson died of an overdose. And so it's not, it's a culture with fewer safeguards and, and a lot, there's a lot of pain in it and maybe more pain in rock musicians than there are in Hollywood actors because Hollywood actors are empty vessels. No, they're vessels of love and blank slates. Whereas musicians have real feelings. Uh, but when it happens, I do, I do get a, uh, I go through a reflective period where, it isn't quite um, there, but for the grace of God. But I do recognize, like, life is hard, and it doesn't get easier as you get older. And we are fragile, and um, and it's a, I think, a healthy reminder. I would I would say I have almost no fear of the state of death, but the things you're talking about, the fragility, and how um, how awful it might be. As the end approaches, there are a lot the of awareness of loss. And yeah, a lot of ways to go that feel like. Uh, are there specific ways to go you have fears of? Oh, I just mean l- l- decline of faculties. That, yeah, that, that's my big. Yeah, that's my big fear. I mean, getting stabbed on the street or hit by a meteor or heart attack. I mean, they all just seem equally like. But well, some, some people do have very specific fears of different kinds of death. My wife is terrified of the idea of drowning, and I always say. Uh, I've you know, people say it's kind of a blissful, rapturous way to go. She's not having any of it. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't say that when I'm, you know, trying to sell her on drowning or, uh, or you know, try to drown her for insurance money. I I go snorkeling every year, and I'm definitely, I I think back to the early years when I snorkeled, and I and I just unconsciously ended up in risky situations. Not I wasn't like I'm a great snorkeler. It was the opposite. I was like always staving off panic. But once I got comfortable, I was like, oh, let's follow this turtle. And pretty soon I'm out and crashing waves and I'm like, what am I doing? This is dumb. And, I'm not a strong swimmer. And then you read all the things where it's like, well, snorkelers die every year by being out too far. So I I think about that, but I'm not afraid of actual drowning. Like but, the, the visceral idea of the water seems to really weigh heavily on her in a way that it does not on me. But for me, it's uh, it's any kind of claustrophobic death. Mm. Uh, dying by being buried or confined. Well, this is the show for you, I feel. John. I feel like, you know, I used to get handcuffed a lot when I was young um, because I was always not on the wrong side of the law, but adjacent to the wrong side of the law. 
And you knew a lot of people who were getting handcuffed. Yeah. Well, and I got handcuffed and sat in the back of police cars. How many times have you been handcuffed in a non-sexy way in your life? Seven times where I've. Wow. Been... These are seven different occasions. This is not like one processing where you got cuffed and uncuffed three times. <laughs> no. Where, yeah, where a policeman. Well, no, I, wait a minute. It's more than seven because I went to court in handcuffs one time where I was handcuffed in a group of people with a handcuff connecting me to a guy on my right and a handcuff connecting me to a guy on my left. I didn't know they still did this. Was it, was it you and a, did you and a, maybe a person of color learn a lot about each other that day? We did. We became friends. Um, no, it was in Colorado where they have different laws. It was a posse comitatus (laughs) situation. We were on the side of the road, but I used to just bear it as like, oh, well, this is just one of the many things that, that you experience as a person. But I feel like if I got handcuffed now, at my age, sure, you'd be in, yelling "sovereign citizen." In this economy, I would be, I would, I would be trying to negotiate with the officer. Like, listen, I know you need to con- uh, uh, handcuff me now, but please don't. Isn't there something we can do? Because I just don't want to be like confined. Oh, I think for me it would be the stigma. Having oh, never been handcuffed. No, the stigma. You mean well, that's a thing you that, that ship sailed. The stigma <laughs> the old USS stigma sailed for you long ago. But you you feel like being handcuffed would be an indignity more than a more yes. than like a, what if my mother what if my sainted mother were alive to see this? And I, also she is. So sure she would. Because yeah. it'd be on the news for <laughs> it, sure. It would absolutely be on the news. <laughs> it would lead it would lead the news. Well that maybe depends on what I'm getting cuffed for. Would you pull your jacket over your head like a seventies mobster? <laughs> Or an 80s monster? Uh, I think I would just, I would just, no, I, I always thought that was too much. You just need to say, like, no comment as your lead pass. Yeah, the you'd mob. maintain your dignity. You'd stand up straight. Yeah. Um, well, I hate to, now knowing about your claustrophobia, I kind of regret waking up this morning and thinking, <sighs> I have, I overslept and I have 45 minutes to, uh, to think about an omnibus. I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to la, 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 Anga Kinga, Anga Kinga through this episode. <laughs> Today we are headed deep into the earth. Oh, boy. Or at least six feet into the earth to study uh, the 19th century fad of safety coffins. Okay. I think I know where you're going. Yeah. Coffins with a way out. Coffins with, that are decked out with, with, a little uh, bell. With, with all of today's conveniences and noises. Exactly. A, a bell and a, and a clown horn and a auga. The fear of, uh, the, at least the idea, the specter, the narrative of a believed dead person being buried without actually being dead goes back millennia. Because um, it happened. There are, well, there are stories of it happening to Byzantine emperors, the Emperor Zeno. There's a story of it happening to the 14th century or the 13th, 14th century theologian, uh, theologian John Scotus, Or theologian, as they say in Canada. I don't know why I said theologian. It rhymes with Kenny Loggins. Uh, doesn't. The st- <laughs> no, it does not. <laughs> the story about Scotus, which Francis Bacon later relates, is that he, was, uh, he had a servant who knew he was susceptible to coma or catalepsy or whatever, but through bad luck, that servant was away and was not able to say, hey, has anybody actually checked to see if the great man is dead? And as a result, um, it was only discovered years later when exhuming or moving the grave for some reason that John Dunscottus was found in a pose of, let me out of here. A, ske- right. a skeleton that can only be described as, let me out of here. That he, that he had uh, written all of Shakespeare's plays and then by candlelight. <laughs> well, I mean, this this story, like many of the stories we're going to see, 
is not attested very well, only centuries later. Really? And today, most people believe that John Don Scotus, when buried, was fully dead, the way we all dream of being. Uh-huh. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't just centuries of stories like this. It's a popular trope. And the question becomes, is it a popular trope because it happened, or is it a popular trope because everybody loves an urban legend, even in the 1600s? I mean, it's gotta be a common fear. And so when you're looking for horror situations, like meeting a ghost on the moors is one thing, but... But this is something that's, you know, it's a common experience that we all have. We've all, you know, especially back then, everybody would have seen a family member dead in bed. Everyone would have had the experience of putting them in the ground and everyone would have thought, well, what if that went wrong? Right. I mean, it's too, grandma's down there now. What if she needs to come out? Um, there are famous stories of what is called viva sepulture of someone being put into the grave prematurely. Um, probably the most famous is a woman of Basingstoke. I think I'm saying that right. Named Alice Blunden, who is, these are really English sounding words, died and buried (laughs) in 1674. She's a maltster's wife, a maltster being someone who, who dried grain into malt, malt for brewing. Um, the uh, the pamphlet, the tract um, from the late 17th century that describes this event is not very kind to Alice, so I apologize if, uh, if any of her descendants are listening. The, the, tech, the tract calls her a fat, gross woman who had accustomed herself many times to drink brandy. I don't know if many times modifies accustomed or drink there, but... I feel like drinking brandy isn't, isn't by itself an indictment of a person. Well, plus many times... I mean, surely we all know someone who has had a brandy many times. Sure. St. Bernard brings it to them around in a little barrel. <laughs> sure. Perhaps. Although I bet between the two of us, we don't know a ton of brandy drinkers. Uh, if we did, I mean, the, if somebody actually, if somebody, a brandy is somebody's drink, you probably know, right? Yeah. I knew a guy who drank brandy Alexander's, <laughs> but it was like, it was such a. Brandy's Alexander? Brandy's Alexander. It was such a uh, it was such a cool affectation that you couldn't even you had to tip your hat to him. Like, wow, okay, Brandy Brandy Alexander. Hey? All those guys switched to absinthe once it was legalized. Yeah, or died. Um, so imagine a large woman who is fond of drink, also fond apparently of poppy tea. Oh, okay, ar- around this time, <laughs> she's a junkie. <laughs> around this time, you could actually brew opium poppies into a into a nighttime drink. Yeah. In this case, she falls into a deep sleep. Um, the apothecary says, oh, well, yeah, she's dead. Oh, she nodded off. Now, her, hus- her husband knows that um, that she's a poppy tea drinker and says, well, don't, I got to go on this urgent business trip. You got to wonder what kind of malt business is keeping him away. Please don't hold the funeral just in case. Wait, wait, wait. His wife is dead, but he's got an important business trip. This was already planned long before, John. He's like, like, hold her. Let's not judge William Blunden so harshly. Hold her here. Just in case. Don't don't hold the funeral without me. Right. I got some some malt business to conduct. Did you try tickling her? (laughs) We're going to get into the tickling, actually, if you're into that. Okay. However, according to the pamphlet, Alice's relations, maybe there's difficult in-law relationship here because Mm -hmm. the the, uh, whatever her maiden name is, her family... Davies, there we go. The Davies family. Or Davis, I guess, if it's Welsh. Uh, her family considers, quote, the season of year being hot and the corpse fat. It would be impossible to keep her. I do feel like 
letting the corpse slightly putrefy might would, help would be a way of of um striking out the possibility that they're not dead i mean the story's not clear that the husband suspects that she's alive, uh, alive. he just doesn't want to miss she dies the all the time <laughs> <laughs> he just doesn't want to miss the funeral also this seems like Utter fat shaming. Why does the weight of the uh, victim have anything to do with the... I mean, I can see the weather affecting this decision, but I don't see why you want a hot, skinny person li- lying around either. Uh, well, putrefying. I don't know. What, yeah, it beats me. There's an awful lot of fat shaming in history. Let's be honest. Let's be honest. Until very recently, it was a common way of dealing with things. Uh, seems like a form of misogyny in this case as well. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe, if, maybe the maltster himself is a little portly, but it was just a sign of his, of, uh, you know, his status and bonhomie. Uh-huh. Um, anyway, she is buried before William returns. However, a few days later, some young boys are playing near the grave and they report hearing a voice. Uh-oh. They are disbelieved, but when others have the same reports, the body is dug up and is found to be, quote, most lamentably beaten. Oh. She has been evidently thrashing around in the coffin. Oh, no. Now, they don't uh, detect any signs of life, so she is lowered back into the grave. Only to reanimate. <laughs> well, you're, you're joking, but they say, let's put her, let's keep her in the grave until we can call the coroner tomorrow. But when they come back, they find that she's actually torn off her burial shroud again She's there are scratches, new scratches on her. Her mouth is beaten, quote, till it is all in gore blood. So apparently, uh, she was buried not once but twice prematurely. Hmm. Um, and the coroner really frowns on burying her a third time. <laughs> no, <laughs> he disapproves of all of the mistakes that have been made up to this point. Okay. And in fact, good. and in fact, many of the Basingstoke locals are uh, are asked or are, are bound over to appear at the next. Assizes the following Lent. I guess Lent was the time of year when the these periodic courts came through Basingstoke. Nobody was convicted, but the town itself had a considerable fine set upon them for their neglect. Yes. So this is the kind of story that gets told a lot to the degree that um, some reports from the time say that uh, you know when graves are when graves are dug up, the skeleton is found to be contorted roughly one time in ten suggesting that only 90% of burials are successful and well-timed. Surely not. Um, you, you know, this is a bit of an aside, but now that I see that, I kind of wonder if some kind of un, not well-understood leaky coffins or, you know, geologic <sighs> movements in the soil, you, you know, if other things are cracking coffins or tilting coffins yeah. and messing up bones to the degree that later generations assume, oh, look, Grandma must have still been breathing when, in fact, it's just bones getting tossed around by who knows what. Yeah, right. I, I do feel like it's fairly common that um, that people would ascribe some kind of supernatural or or otherwise Post-mortal. explanation for for simple stuff. Because you can imagine water getting into a coffin and, yeah. and tossing warping the, it. warping the bones around so that they appear to be in a pose that they would not have been buried in. I mean, as late as the 19th century, uh, the best scientific estimates of the United Kingdom said that they were burying between 800 and 2,700 dearly departed alive every year. Now, is this pre-embalming? It must be pre-embalming. 
Yeah, it's not just that it's it's not just that it's pre-embalming, but it's also pre-competent um, medical examination. There was no routine um, stage at which a dead body was examined. No autopsy, not even a medical examiner. Not not common and certainly not mandatory. I mean, when, we, when I say pre-embalming, of course, embalming existed in 6,000 BC. Sure. So it's not there like... There was mummification in Egypt, but it was not common then. And, and you know, I think um, maybe more of a recent phenomenon now when yeah, we're okay. more squeamish about death. Let's make sure we have a good-looking body next Right. Tuesday when the relatives fly in, you know, right. open casket funerals. So what, what? this was a thing where they put a mirror in front of them to see if it, they fogged the mirror type of, like, that's how you knew if somebody was dead? There are stories like that. Um, you know, so this gets into the common culture, and you can see there are stories in the Decameron about someone being, being buried prematurely. Edgar Allan Poe has a story called the premature burial. Right. But a lot of them seem to be at the level of, I mean, and to this day, many people don't believe the Alice Blunden story. Right. Um, there's a parish register that just, that says none of this. It just says, Mr. William Blunden's wife buried on such and such a date. Oh, so they don't think that, they think that it, it's Even just, these ur-texts are... That, that, that it was, that it's like written later by pranksters? Sure. Like oh. Francis Bacon writing about John Donne Scott. Or just a story that gets out of control, a story that gets out of hand, it gets embroidered better with every telling. Right. Or it could have been somebody just inventing a fun fable. I mean, that's fun. what... I mean, today that we under, we understand how urban legends circulate, thanks to kind of some 70s and 80s era research. I mean, prior to that, I think a lot of people really did believe they had a friend of a friend who... Yeah. You know, who knew a woman who dumped a bunch of cement in her cheating ex-husband's convertible or yeah, yeah, a right. bunch of kids who shouldn't have put the cat in the microwave or, you know, I think we uncritically believed a lot of these stories until sociologists. Or you drank Pop Rocks and Coke. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Until a lot of these things got tracked down and it turned out, oh, everybody knew somebody like this. And I guess the question still becomes, is there an Earth story or is it all made up? But the story seems so good. Yeah, it does. That... You know, the kind of thing that would be invented. But, you know, these things kind of almost rose to the level of folk ballad. There would be the famous story of the lady in the ring um, was told in many European countries. And some it's a English woman named Constance or it's a German woman named whatever. The story is always the same, though. A woman is um, uh, some kind of a gra- grave digger or usually a corrupt sexton notices oh, that's what that's always the corrupt sexton don't right? trust the corrupt sextons he notices a nice ring on the finger of a of a departed at, at a at a funeral or at burial rites and uh a couple days later um digs her up and that's when sh- shenanigans ensue she's alive or he tries to cut off the ring and she comes alive or she grabs the sexton and pulls him down and he dies too. Or, you know, the story gets better and different in each telling. Right. But the core thing, the, you know, the, the, the grave robber seeing the beautiful ring seems to be a constant. And there's other types like this, the amorous monk, the negligent anatomist. The um, amorous monk. I don't know. But there's a kind of, there's these set folk tales of a body not being dead and right. it's, it's discovered in some kind of, dramatic fashion yeah um did any of them happen hard to say uh it's true that you know as we say this is a time without good medical exams and sometimes the dead do present rigidity or a trance-like state some kind of catalepsy that to the layperson might be indistinguishable from death 
right? But you'd think. After the whole preparation of a funeral and all that time, I mean, you can't get them right in the ground. Although, in Islam, you're supposed to get them buried within a certain window of time. Yeah, right? for a pretty quick one, right? Yeah, right. Um, the, the, the belief becomes so common, this is just happening hundreds of thousands of times each year, that it becomes actually uh, a movement. Um, really? Like a social movement? Yeah. Uh, there's a reformer, I guess we can get to him now, named, I think, William Tebb, who is you know interested in all the big social reforms of his time, vegetarianism, American uh, abolition of slavery. Right. Um, all the great. But also anti-vax. Um, he's against the first vaccine, smallpox. Uh-huh. And I didn't realize this, but there were, there were all these kind of, uh, you know, groups against the practice of inoculation of, of, you know, the London society against, and they all, you know, you read their stuff and it's all eerily similar to what you might read today. Like, even if this saves a few lives, think of all the people who are getting felled by, you know, more harm than good is being done. We, we have heard a case of a patient who, came down with both scrofula and syphilis after receiving the smallpox vaccine. Uh-huh. You know, it's just like the the uh, autism stuff. Or even, uh, you know, a tyrannical government must not be allowed to. So he was one of these guys. And he actually founded, like, a, a society for the prevention of burying people alive. <laughs> and left specific notes that he was to, his body was to be left for a week before it was cremated, just in case. Sure. What is the time that it takes for someone's body to begin to decompose? Well, I read that Mary Roach book about this, and so a lot depends on conditions and whatnot. But in general, your internal organs will start to go within a day or three. Whoa, okay. Um, Three to five days later, that's when your body starts to bloat and, Mm. you know, leak. So not to be... be, um, gross about it. But, but the thing is, doesn't a dead person look blue and get rigor very quickly? Yes. But I, I think the idea is maybe some kind of catalepsy oh, okay. mimics rigor mortis. And rigor mortis does go away, right? Right. Um, so I think at that point, it's, you know, it's only eight to 10 days later that you really start to see, you know, the body turn from bluish green back to red due to all the you know, leakage that's going on inside. Leakage. You'll be liquefying in about a month, basically. Uh, But I think the idea is this is from a time when, without embalming, bodies had to be buried pretty quickly and conceivably mistakes could be made. Right. Now, again, there's no specific record. There's no good record of any of this actually happening. Some single, well-attested 17th or 18th century case. Really? In all, because I always assumed it was taken as red, that it, that it happened a lot. Everybody at the time assumes it is. There's hundreds or thousands of these every year. And as a result, we need these new methods. So doctors begin suggesting new infrastructure to prevent this plague of live burials. For plague. example, for example, feather quill tickling. Make sure you always tickle the dead body with a feather quill. That works. Oh, no. But that's that's what... They would suggest as a as a means of proof. That's the first thing you do is tickle them with a with a quill. It's a lot easier than the second stage, urine mouthwash. The idea being that only a dead person would be not grossed out by having to gargle with urine, whereas a living person would spit up and be like, "Why are you? Don't put pee in my mouth and say that it's raining." <laughs> but that seems like like it presupposes that the person is faking and that you're. 
going to pee in their mouth and they'll be like, oh! You got me. <laughs> Maybe the idea is just the taste is so unpleasant. Oh. Um but you're right. These do not seem particularly scientific. And maybe, in this case, invented by just somebody with a weird fetish. Okay. Um, the third step, tobacco smoke enemas were often prescribed. Literally blowing smoke up someone's rear. Uh, which I guess was thought to wake the dead if they weren't really dead. Sure. Also something where you might legitimately say, hey, cut it out or might say wow that's really relaxing <laughs> you think you think if you were presenting the signs of death but not actually dead you if, if somebody blew tobacco smoke up your up your behind you might just settle into an even deeper nap i mean the thing is if you had like some kind of uh like like uh <laughs> clenching rigor as a you know maybe that would be the thing that chilled you out well if you're a smoker presumably you haven't had a smoke for a couple days at this point and maybe that's exactly what you need you're probably pretty stressed like you want the enema like you want that um you know you want that in your bloodstream as soon Uh as possible Uh that's the stuff but the belief becomes so prevalent that it becomes common practice in germany uh to store the dead in uh, waiting rooms called Leichenhauser. Leichenhauser. Uh, where you where the dead are stored for a, a period of days such that, with bells at many times attached to their fingers, such that, you know, medical examiners, uh, authorities would become aware. Bells on their fingers and toes. Just in case. Ding, 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 so ding. a little jiggle would prove. And, the, and this, uh, it wasn't even a Leichenhauser, it's a German word. The same practice was followed apparently in cities from Copenhagen, to Lisbon, to Prague, to Paris. And in all of this time of this becoming standard procedure, there is no record of any of these uh, precautions locating a... A single time. A prematurely buried corpse, which you'd think would be... You know, this would be the equivalent of, now that we all have phones, where's Bigfoot? Or right. now that it's been 30 years, where are the Vietnam POWs, you know? If, if, uh, if one out of 10 people was being buried alive... Why are the Leichenhauser so fruitless? So this is what makes me think that a lot of the earlier stories are effectively folk ballads or, or urban legends. Well, that's good. That's reassuring. Except Uh-oh. that in more recent cases, now this is the equivalent of we all have phones. Like now that we all do have access to local news and deaths are more carefully recorded and such, there have been a few cases. Oh, no. Um, and I mean in the 21st century. In 2001... And Ashland, uh, a funeral home in Ashland, Massachusetts, got sent a body bag from a hospital. That's a fake town, by the way. There's no Ashland, Massachusetts. <laughs> Weirdly, oh, I was like, I was reading about Ashland, Oregon. I just found out the other day that Nabokov, previously mentioned here, hung out in Ashland, Oregon. Wow. Uh, he was they, left- didn't, they hadn't even invented Ashland, Oregon. They didn't then. even have the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. <laughs> they didn't have a bunch of weird sandwich shops with Shakespearean puns in their names. <laughs> no, he was a lepidopterist, and he was often traveling the West. Looking for a weird Lepidopting. specimen. He was lepidoptering. Mm-hmm. Uh, butterfly collector. Ken, how's your hair? <laughs> My hair feels great, It's actually. It's pretty full and and, uh, f- and fluffy. I don't want to brag. They stopped having to fill in the back of my head. With on... spray foam? Yeah, there's kind of, there's like a, th- you know, because like harsh TV lights really yeah. make people look balder than they are. Sometimes they have been filling in the back of my head. And they don't have to anymore. They don't have to. I mean, it, you know, the the degree to which a full head of hair is part of, a, you know, a kind of masculine identity, you are in a in a position where millions of people see, well, millions, 
uh, some number of hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people no, see, <laughs> see you every week uh, hosting the Jeopardy program, and you don't want to look like um, less than the full amount of fluff. The problem with our um, cultural obsession with hair and baldness is that, like, literally two out of three guys, the majority of men will experience some kind of male pattern baldness in their mid-30s, yeah. you know, by the time they're 35. Right. And then it just goes up from there. So it's not like it's a, a a rare or severe or stigmatized problem. It shouldn't be. It happens to almost everybody. And it used to be if you wanted to get um, like an, uh, a hair loss preventing medicine, you had to go to a doctor, right? Yeah. You'd have to get a prescription sometimes. You'd have to use a name brand. And uh, a lot of them aren't FDA approved. Yes. There's two FDA approved ones. And the great thing is Only you, two. you can get both of them uh, cheaper and easier with keeps uh an online service for ordering for prescribing and ordering uh and then continuing to receive uh fda approved hair loss medication oh so it still is a prescription in order to to get the one of the two if fda approved you, if you want ones. the prescribed one yeah you can get the prescription online um you don't have to visit a doctor uh you'll get a cheaper generic so you're going to save a ton of money and it's really important to do it when you think you might be in the early stages, because, you know, the best thing you can do is maintain. I mean, there may be some regrowth, but the great, the great thing is you can keep what you have now. I remember when you had less hair and it's sort of phenomenal that it's worked and look at your hair now. Uh, Seemed like well, you, you look like a little badger. That's what I asked for. Uh-huh. I went to my doctor because, uh, you know, this is before I knew about keeps. And I said, what do you have that will make me look like a little badger? He said, doctor. Mr. MD. So if you're ready to take action and prevent hair loss, what do you do? Go to keeps, K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. And if you use that code, you'll get your first month of treatment for free. You're saying K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus to get your first month free? K-E-E-P-S dot com slash omnibus. Uh, in 2001, in Ashland, Massachusetts, the body bag is delivered to the funeral home and then starts to move, which is not what you want in a body bag. Really? Um, in 2011, a Russian woman uh, sat up at her own funeral. Again, not believable, but yeah. I mean, again, the, these are sometimes the news stories coming out of parts of the world where the story turns out to be a friend of a friend thing. Yeah. But there are, it does still seem to be a... Uh, a thing. A trope. Yeah, in 2014, a Mississippi man... Uh, a Walter Williams, I believe, is in the embalming room, um, about to get his blood swapped out with formaldehyde. When his, somebody tickles him with a feather, exactly, his legs start to move. I'm sure taking a few years off the life of the poor <laughs> mortuary uh, employee. Uh-huh. My favorite in 2014 and 2015, there were two different cases of this in the same small Greek suburb. Uh, a suburb of Thessalonica that only has about 18,000 people, two different cases recorded of a, uh, of a body in a morgue starting to talk and knock and whatnot. I wonder if it's a, like a sleeping thing, like somebody ate a certain kind of berry or, or, um, that seems to be even more of an old timey superstition that there's a kind of draft that mimics death. Yeah. But then, cause this is what often happens in fairy tales, right? Right. Right. The, the witch that the, or the sleeping beauty seems to be dead, but actually, or, uh, only sleeping. Cause I think you want it as a means of resurrecting your, 
your hero. You know, in the second act, you want to bring someone low, and then the third act, you want to bring them back. Right. The and, Lone Ranger falls off a cliff. And what could be more dramatic? So, yeah, so you could have somebody hanging from a cliff, but if you've seen the body, what could it be? You know, soap operas will often introduce an identical twin or something. But here's a case where, no, no, this person has just learned a secret breathing technique or taken a, a few drops of atropine or, or whatever it is. Sherlock Holmes or Batman learned to stop their hearts. So in a world where you believe that hundreds or thousands of people are dying every year, this goes from... Wait a minute. They aren't? <laughs> hundreds, of, hundreds of thousands of people are not dying every year, but are believed to die. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, look, what do you know that I don't? Look, millions of people are not dying every year. But we're talking about the specific people. The specific millions who do. Who are, no, they're not dying, oh, but they have the bad manners to, to uh, appear to be dying. Right. That's what causes the problem. Somebody who dies, somebody who doesn't die, the system works just fine for them. Okay. It's the person who doesn't die, but seems to. This is another episode where we believe things are basically what they seem. <laughs> yes. Although we now, in hindsight, believe that they were not what they seemed, because everyone back then thought that this was happening all the time. Got it. Premature burials were happening in every cemetery, you know, once a month. And things are mostly what they seem unless they're not. Exactly. Things are what they seem until new uh, scholarship asserts that they are not, and we immediately switch to the new voice of science. So do you think it's possible that new scholarship will determine that we are all given a secret bank account uh, when we're born, <laughs> and capital letters mean that we're not? Uh, responsible for our debts? Yeah, a new generation of legal scholar on uh, America Now or OneNation.com or whatever these places are uh -huh. is going gonna, is gonna to blow my mind, probably. Uh, so, I mean, to us, this is a very irrational fear, you know, just because we don't like the idea of being alone in the dark. And it, it, it's leveraged in horror movies and stuff, so we can experience it vicariously and either get a pleasant or an unpleasant chill, right? But if you actually thought this was happening... 2,700 times a year in your home country, you would be worried about it happening to you. Sure, you'd be super appalled. It would be the equivalent of reading that, well, a certain number of people have carbon monoxide leaks. I need to get one of those little things. Or a certain number of people uh, get mercury poisoning. I need to eat less sushi. You know, right. it, it would actually be kind of a, a sensible precaution. If you have to take asbestos siding off of your house, it's a super fun site. You have to wrap it in plastic. As early as, uh, I think, the 7th century, the Byzantine emperor Heraclius, possibly believing pre uh, rumors about one of his predecessors, Zeno, asked that his sarcophagus lid be left open for three days. And a watchman or, or relatives routinely check on, on what was going on. Seems right. Yeah, I mean, very, very little to lose. And if you're, a, if you're a king, you have more power to be like, hey, everybody do this. And nobody, you know, whereas if you're just a you know, a, a crofter in Yorkshire, everybody's going to be like, no, we're just going to dump you in the fan. It feels like nowadays in modern cities, it takes three days just to get through all the paperwork. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Unless you're a sovereign citizen. Right. In which case you can, if your last words are, you know, <laughs> bury me at make out point, then they have to, they have it. to bury you at the federal reserve. <laughs> they have to bury you in Fort Knox. Um, so, in 1791, there was a minister named Robert Robinson, who was also kind of a crank about these issues, and he designed his own burial case. It kind of had a, uh, a glass pane that could be lifted out like a guillotine blade of the coffin, which was positioned such that it would be right in front of the, the nose and mouth of the deceased. 
So you could walk up to the coffin and lift out the thing, like you're you know pulling a uh, exposure out of a camera, and see whether there was any fog on the window, and if not, set it back. Now this only works again if you're. I, I, th- I think he was in some kind of tumor mausoleum, so he could assign a family member to, you know, make sure you check uh, once a day for a little while to make sure there's no breath on my on my pain. Although you could have one of those just like. Uh... H.G. Uh, Wells style, like submarine horns, where like, I'm in here. Hey. If you're in a mausoleum, yeah, this is not a 19th century option, I guess. Or I, I guess it could be. You just have to be purely acoustic. Yeah, you'd have to have one of those megaphone singer. Watermobile, watermobile. Imagine a coffin with a, a casket with just a giant megaphone sticking out of the top, like a cheerleader uh-huh. uh, cone sticking out of the top of it. I'm not dead. In the 1844 Edgar Allan Poe story, A Premature Burial, this is probably the beginning of our fascination with these tricked-out, burial-proof coffins. Um, because the guy that the, the title, the title uh, Misfortune Befalls, actually is a paranoid premature burial oh, phobic. What are go. the odds? So he's got this coffin that's like, it's padded on the inside. It's got little containers for food and water. Um, there's ventilation, there's windows, there's um, like, like it's kind of spring loaded so that the slightest motion of the inha- of the occupant will pop open the lid. Uh, the tomb itself has like a lever so that if once the guy gets out of the coffin, you know, the tomb has a lever. And these are all the things that, that fail, obviously. Spoilers. One after another? <laughs> it's the worst luck, you know? <laughs> like he never should have gone with the... With the Made in Taiwan version, you know? Right. Um, But this led to a series of actual patents being granted to American citizens who thought this was the future. The people are going to want an escapable coffin. My coffin has a Fresnel lens. (laughs) I mean, what I would want is an escape-proof coffin. Like, if mistakes are made, the last thing you want is that person, you know, shambling out and making trouble. Because in all of these old-timey stories, the person later dies. You yeah, know, the lady with the ring, the amorous monk, the Alice Brunden, they all come up, spook the living, and then, you know, it's too late. They That's fall back I, into their plots. I feel like a, a bonfire is the is the easy solution. As if you're cremated, it's not an issue because no one will ever know. You will just yeah. I mean, unless you sit up on the bonfire, youch. <laughs> unless you say youch. Talk about uh, tickling your butt with a feather. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why they pick all these gentle things like yeah. let a, like light a fire under them slice off, in their mouth. slice off somebody's pinky for crying out loud <laughs> i mean uh the first patent was granted in uh 1868 to a franz vester for what he called an improved burial case and these things are all great because you know you have to submit a diagram to the patent office mm-hmm. so these things all have cross sections with a nice little uh dead person dead person with his uh, his or her arms folded over their chest this one has an air inlet, just like Edgar Allan Poe's. It has a ladder, so you can oh. climb out, I guess. Um, and a bell. And a bell. So if you're too weak to climb the ladder, uh, you can ring the bell. But it requires that you hire and pay for a watchman. Yes. I guess the idea is that would, would, would the graveyards have had... Somebody wandering around, a, a, either an old uh, an old watchman with a hound dog or maybe just a, a sexton, a churchman of some kind who does the rounds every morning before he rings the bell. Maybe maybe kids are vandalizing 
Graves, maybe um, maybe you presume that your bereaved wife is kneeling on your grave praying and crying. Fresh flowers every day. And then you ding, ding, ding. Which is probably true in many cases for about a month or two. A month or two? You think that's long or short? That somebody goes to your grave every day? Okay, not every day? day. But, but, you know, even the weekly visits probably tail off pretty quick is what I'm saying. I would say after week one. Don't you... Put somebody in the ground and and say, and and uh, water their grave with your tears, and then get on with your life. Maybe grandma, but not a spouse. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I've never been married. <laughs> uh, That's you, one of the things you vow. That's one of the common mm-hmm. wedding vows: is the first week after my death, will you come to my grave weeping at least every other day? If you died prematurely and were buried. Mm-hmm. Do you think Mindy, how often do you think Mindy would come to your grave in the first month? I mean, the thing about Mindy is, um, she doesn't want to go do stuff. No, she's got a flexible schedule. Okay. So if she's not super busy, she'd go in the morning and then next day, maybe stop by in the afternoon. Yeah. Like maybe she, you know, her, her trainer's coming over in the morning or she's got to make cookies for the bake sale or something. I mean, is she coming by to like, talk to you about like. Where's the key to the safety deposit box? I or? believe she is not going to come by and chat with the grave. Because here's how I know. Oh. When I'm out of town, I will call Mindy and I'll just kind of narrate what happened that day in real time. Wow, whether fun. She, whether she's interested or not. <laughs> why Why don't I get these calls? <laughs> hey, I can put you on the list. Or we, we could conference. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we'll Zoom call. Hey, Mindy and John, what's up? So the plane got in a little late, but guess what? <laughs> I, got booked, I got bumped up to Economy Comfort. No, I've spent some time uh, adjacent to your marriage. I know how the conversations go. Yeah, and she will often have no uh, no news at all, even mm-hmm. if anything happened. Mm-hmm. I'll have a hard time getting it out of her. Sure, that seems right. So she'll come to my bra- grave with nothing to say. If she goes first, it's I'm gonna, just going <laughs> to pour the hell out of her in the afternoon. So I left a pot on the stove, but luckily I got to it in time. And then, <laughs> yeah, I, I put on one pair of shoes, but I just didn't feel like wearing them, so I put on a different pair. They were out of the salad mix I liked at the store, so I had to get the spinach one, you know, the one that has the vinaigrette. Anyway, good talking to you. See you tomorrow. <laughs> I'll have more more great stuff like this tomorrow. <laughs> and she's in there, but not ringing the bell. Like just sort of like, oh god. It's basically an Instagram. Like I'm I'm blogging to the dead. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I was reading about the Chinese afterlife. One of the torments that it was anciently ascribed to the afterlife in China is that uh, the dead would be able to climb up on a tower and see what was going on back in their hometown, and inevitably, what they would see is that they were almost immediately forgotten an invisible tower well right like an afterlife tower yeah you're you're in the underworld but you get to climb up a tower and see what's going on in your home prefecture and this is one of the torments yes because you think you want this but you get there and you find your children have forgotten you or disrespectful your grave is in disrepair your spouse has remarried sure your fortune has been squandered none of your friends think about you or talk about you ever you know i mean the the moral which is very believable is that the living do not dwell on the dead for, I mean, mostly just because you're not there to draw attention to yourself. Uh, Unless one of your kids is a hoarder like me. Like if my dad had kept a journal, I would still have it because I still have my dad's old canceled checks. Sure. Your dad's going to get up on that little tower and be like, Hey, John kept, John kept those gold (laughs) medals from my seniors tour. Yeah. God, you know, John's still like sorting through checks from the seventies going like, look at that. It's amazing what a water bill used to, you know, just like so (laughs) lame. But you're not worried about being forgotten because you're, you're in reruns for forever. I mean, I have to admit there is something, I mean, you, 
you're an artist that has produced a body of work. Is there some level of, it's nice that people will think about me? I do feel like there is a chance that people will hear music I've produced or or shows that we've done. I mean, it's the whole premise of Omnibus, right? That most of our listeners are <laughs> are listening to this after we've passed away by many thousands of years, maybe. Um, and I did. There is some comfort in that, but I wonder. I wonder how how would a future. I mean, it, it's just as likely that some future director puts a long winter song. Uh, over the closing credits of a film, please let it be sooner rather than later. I but, mean, but also, I mean, how many bands are there that are just gone forever? Yeah. The, the problem with that whole, like, you know, the Woody Allen joke about, I'd rather achieve immortality through not dying. I mean, yeah, right. immortality through your work is pretty good, but it's, it's so rare, you know, read a list of the, the best selling books of we've talked about this, yeah, read a list yeah. of the best selling books of the 1920s or the, the top grossing movies of the fifties. And there's just a lot of forgotten dreck. And maybe it was thought good in its time, but art doesn't really last either with very rare exceptions. The thing is, there's always, in music at least, there's always some anorak in in Northern England that's going to try and rediscover the genre, you, you know, your old genre of like indie pop. It'll from, be the equivalent of one of those wax cylinder yeah, guys. It'll be some chav that's like <laughs> in a track suit, you know. But, uh, but, and I think, I think that's more likely than, you know, I picked up a book that I found the other day and I was like, you know, you find these books all the time, book written in 1949. What if I actually read it? And I started reading this, you know, book that didn't have a dust jacket. That was a, that was some Hungarian guy's memoir. And I found it really engaging. I read it all the way through. Just some guy wrote a book. I was, I had a day, I had a free day in Cincinnati, uh, not long ago. And I was just kind of wandering around downtown seeing what Cincinnati, I had to download the Cincinnati, uh, parking, uh, app, which yep. is still on my phone. Uh-huh. It's pretty cool. Cincinnati, isn't it? I, so yeah, the fact that the rents are pretty cheap downtown means that like these cool old brick buildings, I wandered into one that had like a five story used bookstore and because of what it was, it did not nobody was curating the kind of books anyone would actually want to buy. It was right. just, it was just hundreds of feet of books from old library sales and, you know, stuff that's been on the shelf there probably for 50 years. That all smelled like cat urine. Exactly. So, you know, the children's books are all just kind of bizarre, uh, you know, uh, boys adventure series you've never heard of in space or in the North woods or whatever. Right. Whole shelves and shelves of national geographics, of course, but also Zane gray. But also, yeah, but also football uh, uh, analysis magazines, you know, uh, football stats. Right. From, from the from the 60s. Yeah, 60s and 70s. And, uh, you know, out of print uh, romances and thrillers and just nothing that anyone would want or is still in print. And I just started thinking, what would be the odds that I could just pull a book from this shelf and do your experiment? find this Hungarian memoir interesting. And I just couldn't do it. Like something about like these endless rows of beige spines, none of which I'd ever heard of and all of which conveyed stuff to throw away from grandma's house. I just couldn't get past it. You you didn't even try. You didn't pull one out and flip it open and see. I pulled out the ones that looked interesting, but that meant the stuff that like I could still, that something about them was relatable to me. They were not just, um, 
you know, forgotten 1892 novel. I have a friend who scrapbooks and she really records her passage through time, her passage through life in scrapbooks, which are just like keeping a journal. Except, except with different color, yeah, colored papers. You know, ticket stubs and photographs and, you know, and I, I think scrapbooking now has all this sort of organizational templates where it's like the top, my top five movies of March or, and, um, it's intriguing, but as she fills up the shelves, you know, a scrapbook for every year and they're pre-organized. So they're not like, Oh, you just keep writing until you're done. But like th these two pages are for March. These two pages are for April. Um, and you look at them and you go, the audience for these past your death or even before you die, does it even extend to your own children? Yeah. Like, would you, if your, if your mother had kept scrapbooks through your childhood, you might be interested in them, right? Would you, will you look at a scrapbook that your mom had made from 1982? Probably would. Yeah. Right? Here's what we did this year. And, and maybe before here's, you know, here's how I met your father here's oh here. you would you'd read those maybe before uh-huh yeah but since you know but probably or, 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 probably from 2015 you wouldn't right or probably earlier than that honestly <laughs> yeah so i wonder i mean i think about writing my autobiography but i wonder if i haven't already told all the good stories did i tell you i walked across europe <laughs> you should write a book about that have you thought about that there are multiple other patents for these safety coffins each more elaborate than the last. Here's an 1882 one called a device for indicating life in buried persons where the, uh, the departed has to actually be buried instead of with his hands folded on, it's just holding uh, a pipe. That's a little bit like a kind of a submarine periscope mm -hmm, thing mm -hmm. that can turn such that, so air can pass through the pipe into the casket and it can indicate movement. Cause if the guy comes to life, even the slightest movement apparently of his hands Will, will rotate the pipe and therefore turn something on the surface. Oh, his hands are like tied to the pipe. Yeah, they'd have to be affixed in some way, right? Because you can't count on rigor mortis. Glued, glued to the pipe. That seems weird. Let's say strapped, strapped. Okay, strapped, strapped to the pipe. Um, but how many of these like little bells and pipes and stuff are? If they're sensitive enough to to pick up any small jerk. Aren't they also going to just be moved by the wind when you open a door to the chapel and that type of thing? Oh, that's true. Like the little bell's going to go ding, ding, ding anytime the wind blows. This 1885 one is actually spring-loaded such that feathers will pop out, which is okay. I mean, it doesn't matter under the ground. Like, oh, maybe it sprays. Uh, it probably sprays feathers. Oh, yeah, there's a second pipe. <laughs> like a T-shirt cannon or a, uh, or a little fire or firecracker. Uh, any motion of the body, there's a clockwork driven fan so that the, the, any motion of the body will start this fan whirring. There's a battery powered alarm. The, if the hand moves, it'll close some, complete some circuit, which then turns on the power and These all this stuff. Rube Goldberg machine. Basically. Yeah. Send a hot wheels car down a, <laughs> hit a, hit a, a Christmas cracker. So there was a so there were multiple attempts at you know marketing and selling these and as I've said before you know a whole um, a whole set of uh, well-meaning humanitarian activist groups crusading against the the specter of people being buried alive and again 
no real cases of it actually happening in the 19th century. Everybody was afraid of something that didn't exist. So maybe there's a moral there. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. Think of the things that most you're most afraid of. And then narrow it down to the ones that actually exist. That might that might be helpful. Well, I I very much do worry about being buried alive. Um, not in a coffin, but like falling down a well mm. or some other kind of or maybe in your you car. Know, yeah, buried alive by a sadist who's decided, but you know, this was all part of an anxiety attack era I went through a few years ago, where I think other things were happening in my life that brought anxiety into my heart. Unlike bringing Jesus into your heart, bringing anxiety into your heart is not a religion I would recommend. It's the opposite. And then all of this stuff, all these fears of having my breathing restricted. And of course, what's the ultimate breathing restriction? Well, drowning, but also worse being like in a coffin where, you know, the roof of the coffin's right there touching your nose. Like, ugh. I used to, I think I'm pretty claustrophobia proof. And often as a hmm. kid, I would, um, I would enjoy kind of the idea of huddling in my blankets, imagining that I was in some little subterranean lair or, you know, hiding from the, what, hiding from the Lord of the Rings ring wraiths or whoever it was that couldn't get to me because I was I was down in my little burrow. I've heard of people like you. Yeah, little hobbits like me. I, I always associate that with safety. Feeling cuddly and So and I think I think I would enjoy the grave, honestly. Yeah. I like I don't want it to be spraying feathers or, or blasting <laughs> alarms. That all seems a little bit extra. Yeah, well, I mean it I, seems like you're gonna get plenty of peace in your grave because Mindy's gonna be <laughs> Busy, uh, will be off with their karate instructor yeah, step class, and that concludes safety coffins entry 1095.LK0852, certificate number 35676 in the omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era and hasn't been completely buried in a sealed coffin a thousand feet underground where it deserves to be you can find us on the internet at omnibus project at ken jennings where i've noticed you've gotten a little bit more like matter of fact on twitter you're not giving them the the full sassafras that you used to well i'm gonna have a different position now i'm not a i'm no longer a, an outsider jeering from the sidelines right I'm, if the, I'm if I'm hosting a nightly TV show off and on, I'm, you know, I'm the establishment. Yeah, I can't just be, I can't just be throwing uh, fruit. It's true, it's true. I'm the fruit target. You are I'm, the fruit target. I'm the fruity. <laughs> well, you can still you can go back and look at when Ken was a little sassier. Uh, I used to be pretty sassy at John Roderick. Uh, if you want real sass from us, though, you can write. The Omnibus Project at gmail.com. And if you try to correct us, you might hear your letter read on our uh, Patreon only. What is the, what do we call them? Addenda show. Addenda shows that come out once a month. Especially if you correct us and we were wrong and you were wrong. Yeah. That's the way to guarantee your letter gets read. Yeah. You might actually get a snarky reply to your email directly from Ken. Um, Probably a nice reply. Maybe a nice reply. Unless you were a real weirdo. If you really want to get our uh, our hackles up, you can go on a Futurelings website, 
futurelings on Facebook or or Squonk or Squeege and uh, say something on there, like a comment about how we're wrong, because Ken might see it, and then he's going to tell you where he can put it. He's going to put feathers up your bottom. Do I have an account on, on Squonk in this scenario? I think you do, don't you? I was Aren't an early adopter. Yeah, I got Ken Jennings at Squonk.com. <laughs> you got to get there before somebody before some real estate agent gets there. Uh, you can support the show, and uh, supporting the show entitles you to listen to our addenda show, but it also gets you other perks, and those are great perks. But but really, if you contribute to the show at any level, you get to listen to the addenda, right? There's no tier involved. Even at the lowest possible tier, you can listen to the addenda. You can you can invent a lower amount that will not get you the addenda show, but, oh, why, but why would you? Why would you do that? Why would you? Uh, so that's patreon.com slash omnibus project. And if you want to mail us things, um, good natured things, charming things that you find places, you can mail us things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. Speaking of good natured things, we just got our very first note from Taiwan, I believe. Hooray. Rebecca uh, is a writer and editor there for an English language learning magazine. And she wishes us a happy year of the tiger. Hooray. Happy year of the tiger, John. Do we, is it, do we have, uh, does, does Omnibus have a, uh, a stand on Taiwan? We've never uh, talked about it. We, we did this show. She thanks us for doing the show about um, people in Taiwan who got free sushi by changing their name to salmon. That was a good, that was a good show. But I mean, are we, like, we don't want to alienate our mainland Communist Party uh, Chinese, but we also... But what about our Guomintang followers? I do support uh, uh, Taiwanese independence. I, I just think personally I do. Also, the fact that we are um, recording this months before it comes out means that... Uh, we could be releasing this after the uh, Chinese Navy has already set sail across the strait. Right. Assuming that's the next big invasion in a year of invasions. Right. Let's hope not. I hope not. And please, if you are if you are against uh, nationalist Taiwan, uh, please write Ken at Ken Jennings. At Why would you the, write? I'm not against nationalist Taiwan. <laughs> the Onwas Project at gmail.com. I didn't kick Taiwan out of the UN. I don't make them wear those Chinese Taipei uniforms in the Olympics. None of this was my idea. No. Nope. You're right. Uh, None of it is compatible with Marxism. Thank you, Rebecca, for wishing us a happy year of the tiger. You know, do you know what Chinese zodiac you are? Yeah. My brother is... Oh, I'm tiger, because I'm turning 48 this year. I hate it when it's a... When a mine comes around again, because it means I'm 12 years older. Oh, yeah. I'm year of the tiger. Omnibus was born in... Let's see. It came. The first Omnibus came out in December, right? Of 2017. Yes, and 2017 was the year of the rooster. So Omnibus is actually a, a Chinese rooster. I was born in the year of the monkey. That's good. Yeah. Except you're not a monkey. You don't think? No. Monkeys are. Uh, I'm pretty. I'm pretty Yang, don't you think? Or do you think I'm Ying? You're not a little mischievous mo- monkey. Oh, well, what would you call me? Something substantive. You're the ox. No, the ox. That's, I'm not some slow moving uh, ox. Yeah, I don't want to convey the dumb animal. Well, what's some animal that's not dumb, but also monkey just seems frivolous. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I, uh, what about, what about a dragon? 
Yeah, there you go. Dragon or... I mean, I'm not a... Dragon's come up in two years, I think. I'm not a snake or a, a horse. I think I'm a dragon. I only know the ones around my birthday. You know, like I know the year... You know, the year younger than me is, I think, rabbit, then dragon. And then I kind of lose track unless I am looking at a Chinese menu. That's the only way I could... I could actually be sure. I feel like the closest dragon to me is a 1964 dragon, which is a wood dragon... Oh, that I, seems some, somewhat right. I didn't know there were different materials. Oh, there's everything, Ken. Ain't it the truth? Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe of fear may never come. If the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon with much goods and cheese and another entry in the end.